Welcome to the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This is the podcast for 8-19-2022. In this podcast, many new interesting articles, but let's begin with the question, what is the most popular drug your patients use to treat sleep? Hmm. Again, the question is, what are your patients using? Not necessarily what you're prescribing. More on that scary news at the end of the report. We're going to begin with a CDC report that appeared yesterday from MMWR about the frequency of uh, invasive fungal infections in the United States in 2019. It's a good reminder that uh, infections like coccidioidomycosis, histoplasmosis, and blastomycosis are not uncommon disorders. The problem is that they're actually quite rare. They're often missed. They're often not suspected. And they're often diagnosed post-mortem. These can preferentially affect patients who are immunosuppressed, especially patients who are on TNF inhibitors. Yeah, I know you worry about all the biologics, all the you know, targeted synthetics and whatnot, but it's really the TNF inhibitors because they contribute significantly to the risk of TB, NTM, non-tuberculous mycobacterial, and invasive fungal infections, and you got to worry about it in those patients tenfold more than you would in other drugs like rituximab or IL-6 inhibitors or whatever. The CDC report from 2019 says that there were 20,000 cases of coccidioidomycosis. That's kind of a lot. Histoplasmosis, one twentieth that number at uh, 1,100. And blastomycosis, relatively rare, 240. What was interesting was the geographic distribution. You know coxie, the coxie belt, is out west, right? So most cases, 97% of cases, were in Arizona and California. Not surprising. We know about the histo belt being from like Illinois down to Arkansas. It even affects my area, Dallas. Um, but most common states there were Illinois, 26% of the all cases, but also, you know, a fairly good, good amount of cases in Minnesota, um, Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, Louisiana, and Arkansas. And lastly, the rare blastomycosis, 75% of the cases came from Minnesota and Wisconsin. In fact, if you look at the maps on this MMWR report, the map of the histo belt seems to overlap to some extent with the blasto um, at-risk population, except the blasto is mostly northern, but it does extend down into the south. So again, I think that's kind of interesting, and, and again, you should be aware that this is something that can affect your patients. The Journal of Rheumatology had a nice report about their risk of rehospitalization in lupus patients, a study of a Medicare study of over 10,000 patients. This included young, middle-aged, and elderly who had a diagnosis of lupus, and they looked at the 30-day rehospitalization rates, uh, and it was certainly much higher in young lupus patients. Uh, so I don't know what your a priori thought would have been, but it's the young ones who are the ones who are most likely to get rehospitalized. Um, after 30 days, and that was, or within 30 days, and that was 36% of the cases. It was 45% higher than um, uh, age match patients who did not have lupus. It was 85% higher than older onset lupus. So it's the young ones, and the predictive factors for rehospitalization were longer hospital stays and higher comorbidities. 
So obviously, you know, these are all markers of the sick, sicker, and sickest. And if you're a young lupus patient getting hospitalized, there's a lot of morbidity here, a lot of even mortality risk, and certainly a big risk of rehospitalization. A nice study looked at a biomarker in uh, SLE, and this particular biomarker was another urine biomarker. You might remember within the last year or so, Fava and colleagues at Hopkins reported on um, IL-16 in the urine as being a great biomarker correlating well with histology, um, class of disease, uh, and not with the things that we usually rely on, things like proteinuria and, uh, and, and competent levels, which in fact aren't very good biomarkers at all. So this, there's a wave of new urinary biomarkers that are probably going to become the standard. Maybe IL-16, but this one, urine-soluble CD-163, um, higher in active lupus nephritis, correlates with the um, UPCR, um, with disease activity and double-stranded DNA titers. And it tends to be higher in those who have chronic kidney disease with lupus. So again, I like seeing these urinary biomarkers as better ways of assessing what's going on renal-wise in our patients with lupus. JAMA Durham had another lupus article, this one about drug-induced lupus due to proton pump inhibitors. You know, the big, tra- you know, the old drugs were procainamide, hydralazine, you know, and a bunch of other oldies, but goodies that no one uses anymore, quinidine and aldamet and things like that, sulfazalazine even. But in more recent years, it's been the TNF inhibitors. But I think that there's a big uh, uh, data set now on proton pump inhibitors as a cause of drug-induced lupus. This was a study from the Vigibase. It's a a French um, safety registry, uh, maybe akin to our MedWatch with the FDA. Uh, And they looked, they identified 625 cases of PPI-associated drug-induced lupus. And they, the average age was 59 years, 78, 78% female, and omeprazole was the number one drug. They got a little more detail out of another data set in France that identified 60 cases. The median age was older at 68, two-thirds were women, and uh, esomeprazole was the number one uh, PPI that was implicated. The pattern here was um, obviously mostly cutaneous disease, mainly seen in those with... CLE, but there were patients with systemic lupus features, um, and there are a lot of patients, maybe the most common presentation was that of um, SCLE, subacute cutaneous lupus, being caused by the drug, in this case, a proton pump inhibitor. But there were cases of discoid lupus and tumidus lupus, um, and unspecified CLE, whatever in the world that is. So the point is that there is a range of possibilities with proton pump inhibitors in you should consider that when dealing with an undiagnosed rash. Again, if it looks like the rash of, especially SCLE, where it's either a papular squamous or an, um, an, an annular kind of lesion, um, you might want to be doing ANA testing. Don't be doing histone antibodies. I don't know why people do that. Everybody has it with lupus has histone antibodies. It's the pattern of histone antibody positivity that's been typified, classified for a few of the drugs that cause drug induced lupus, but not all of them. So don't order histone antibodies. It doesn't make you smarter. It doesn't make you look better. We should look good when it comes to managing gout, should we not? And rheumatologists have sort of led the way in gout in many ways. Um, two reports uh, in this uh, arena. 
One on the value of musculoskeletal ultrasound. Many of you young rheumatologists are using this, are relying on this. You know what it looks like. It's helpful to find, you know, the beaded appearance of uh, urate deposits and whatnot. Uh, this particular study of 71 gout patients on urate lowering therapy looked at how many were going to have flares in the next 12 months. Uh, and they found a median of two flares that occurred in almost half the patients, 42%. What they did show was that the ultrasound findings could maybe predict, in some people, future flares. Now, this is not rocket science here. If you had, you know, MSU deposits, you know, you were 17% more likely to have a flare. I don't think that's surprising. But if you had a Doppler score, you were almost 30% more likely to have a future flare. The point is that this reinforces how we need to better manage gout. And if you want to do it by doing ultrasound and using that to watch more closely, good luck, God bless you, teach others to do what you do. So a nice report or actually review from Stamp and Dalbeth appeared in Nature Reviews of Rheumatology. Um, and this basically looked at some basic tenets in gout, you know, that the the targets of a, a uric acid of less than 5 or less than 6 milligrams per deciliter are basically below the point of uh, urate saturation and thereby you'd be able to uh, lend to future dissolution of um, MSU deposits. Um, as you know, anybody who's done this knows that deposits do not go away quickly. And anyone who started urate-lowering therapy in gal patients know that the benefits of that are also not quick. And I think that's the one thing that I want to stress from this paper is that it takes time to really have the benefit that you get by achieving a target. And as you know, rheumatologists, even rheumatologists who believe in this wholeheartedly only achieve a target, serum uric acid, at 40% of their patients. Multiple studies have shown that number. This report appears in the journal Rheumatology. Um, oh no, we said Nature Reviews of Rheumatology. Nature Reviews Rheumatology. Uh, arthritis Research and Therapy, another journal reported a nice study from Mexico City um, in early RA patients looking at what happens with drug-free remission. What are we talking about here? Someone with newly diagnosed RA, what's the likelihood that they're going to go into remission and be able to stop all therapy and stay in remission? You know it's rare. Which is why I think, you know, weaning drugs, DMARDs or biologics is sort of idiotic. But in this study, I'm going to put a number on it. I've always quoted 10% and these guys support me. That's why I'm reporting it, of course. 209 early RA patients, um, they found that only 23 um, developed dr drug-free remission after follow-up of a mean or median of 74 months. That means they were off of all DMARDs, non-steroidals, prednisone, you name it, and they did not flare. What they did find as a predictive factor here, so number one is that number, about 10% have a real chance of drug-free remission, going off all drugs. This is something patients want to know right at the outset. So this is what I tell my patients. They say, Doc, how long am I going to be on this medicine? I said, well, probably for the rest of your life. Really? I said, well, yeah, only about 10% of people are able to stop all drugs. When could I maybe stop my drugs? And I tell them, you show me one year of remission numbers, the way I measure remission, and I do a CDI, I do a gas score, it doesn't really matter whether you're doing a rapid three, remission numbers, and then we'll start to talk about lessening some of your therapy. 
But until that time, you're on one, two, three, four drugs, whatever we need to get there, right? So again, I think that this is an instructive. What they found that was predictive for drug-free remission was adhering to prescribed therapy early on. So early institution of a DMARD and then being adherent to the DMARD, which now speaks to the other gigantic issue in rheumatology, and that being non-adherence. We don't know what we don't know about our patients not taking their drugs. But early on, this is a point you should be stressing. If we start a drug early and you stay on it religiously, as if your life depends on it, and it does, then you got a fighting chance at getting to drug-free remission. I found a really great report from um, Switzerland. This is in RMD Open. Seth Vanderlinden, who I met when I was a fellow, and I think he's an absolute giant in the world of spondyloarthritis. And this is one of his best and longest studies where he reports on the recurrence of axial spondyloarthritis in first-degree relatives. So in this study, they had 363 patients with spondylitis, and they followed 806 patients with 35 years of follow-up. And they wanted to find out how many of those first-degree relatives were going to get spondylitis like their brother or their parent or whatever. And in their study, if you were B27 positive as an FDR, first-degree relative, 27% develop spondyloarthritis. Historically, all of us who teach on this have been saying 20%, based on actually studies done by Vanderlinden and others over 30 years ago. The new number is 27%. Oops, it's even higher. Um, so again, I think that's the main takeaway here. Um, the recurrence was clearly higher um, in when the parents were B, had B27 positive spondyloarthritis. That meant that the offspring was, had a higher risk and that the offspring who was also B27 had a higher risk. Dennis Podubny um, reported in Al's Rheumatic Disease the frequency of axial psoriatic arthritis, a new subset, not really new. We always talked about that being maybe 20% or 10% of all psoriatic patients who have sacroiliitis, inflammatory back pain, etc. This is a study of dermatology-identified psoriasis adults who had chronic low back pain that was started before the age of 45, and they were not on DMARDs. When they followed 100 patients to be evaluated by the rheumatologist, they found 14 patients who qualified as having axial axial psoriatic disease. 14 with axial disease. Five had peripheral PSA, three had both axial and peripheral. The interesting thing was 70% of these patients were newly diagnosed patients. So the number is, what's the real number? How many patients amongst PSA have axial disease? At least 14% by Podubny's research. A Cochrane review came out this week on the efficacy and downside safety of stem cell transplantation and systemic sclerosis, data based on three randomized clinical trials with 125 patients. They looked at non-myeloablative and myeloablative selective um, uh, human stem cell transplants with moderate evidence of improved survival and efficacy as proven by reduced skin thickness, um, better function, some, some lung benefits. Bottom line, though, if you read this, um, fairly high rates of serious adverse events. So this is something you don't undertake lightly, and most places don't have the ability to do this. Some encouraging data on um, systemic sclerosis comes 
from a Lancet Rheumatology report of 56 patients who were treated with rituximab or placebo. And they got rituximab or placebo the first six months, and they were followed another six months, everybody getting rituximab. In the first six months, those on rituximab had lessening of their modified rod and skin scores, uh, whereas the placebo group had worsening. And then when everybody got rituximab and open-label extension, the skin scores dropped and dropped a lot. Now, they didn't talk about other outcomes here, and this is maybe qualifies as an early phase two, and everything looks good in phase two and crashes and burns in phase three. But again, hope for systemic sclerosis, always a good thing. A new um, intervention, we reported some snippets of this in the past about subcutaneous low-dose IL-2 therapy in patients with systemic lupus. You know, there's a dysregulation of Treg cells. Um, they're not active enough. They're not making enough IL-2. Maybe giving IL-2 would be a good idea. The LUPIL-2 trial, a multi-centered, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, proof-of-concept study, 100 lupus patients with moderate to severe disease activity they either got placebo or sub-Q injections of IL-2, 1.5 million units a day for five days. Then it was followed by weekly sub-Q injections. The primary endpoint was an SRI-4 at week 12, and guess what at week 12? Not significant. Uh, 68% better, uh, 68% SRI-4 with the IL-2 and 58%, and it was not significant, but when they looked at the data, there were two centers in Bulgaria that had 100% SRI-4 responses. Like, what the hell is going on in Bulgaria? So they, when they excluded that data, now the data was significant. So is this a negative study? Not by the primary endpoint, but if you just have a common sense approach to it, um, it looks like it has promise, and hence I would hope that this would go forward into future studies and um, other patients. So... JAMA had a really interesting report about melatonin. It looked like it was going to be like a patient piece, almost like a patient fluff piece about the value of melatonin. And instead, it was a very sobering uh, report. You know, one-third of adults uh, have problems with sleep. Moreover, one-third of adolescents and kids have problems with sleep. I think actually it's almost like half in adults. I was surprised it's that many in kids. So it's not surprising there's a lot of over-the-counter melatonin use. And that is probably the most popular of all the drugs over the counter that's being used because it's patients self-medicate. It seems like it's, there's a reason for it. A lot of natural sites advocate for it. The problem is that this is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. Even in kids, national surveys have shown that in 2007, 0.1% of kids were using melatonin, and that rose sevenfold in 2012 to 0.7%. Since then, there have been studies when adults where the use of melatonin has risen fivefold uh, in 2000 at 0.4% to 2.1% in 2018. So there's increasing use. Um, there's increasing sales. The sales have doubled from $340 million um, in 2017 to $821 million in melatonin sales in 2020. Oh my goodness. There's an increase in poison center reports um, between 2012 and 2021, there were 260,000 calls about ingesting melatonin. That's a 530% increase during that time frame. P 
put on top of this that there's a growing amount of increased dose use of melatonin. This is a little concerning because guess what, folks? Melatonin doesn't treat sleep. It doesn't help sleep. Melatonin is made by the pineal gland. It, it, it regulates our circadian rhythms. It's a night-day um, signal for the brain. Melatonin levels rise uh, in the evening as if to say, it's turning nighttime, Skippy, let's go to sleep sometime soon. Um, and that's about it. It doesn't make people sleep better. It doesn't make them sleep faster. Um, it has utility, according, and it's actually the American Society of Sleep Medicine says they, they do not recommend. They do not recommend melatonin, and they're against it. They do say it may have some role in those who are night shift workers. For instance, you know, those who work the night shift in hospitals and nursing homes, or those flight attendants and, and pilots who are flying um, all night and working more or less night shifts by doing international flights. There, it's helpful in regulating your basic circadian rhythm. There's some argument about some other less common disorders, but it doesn't work. So why all the use? It's up to us to set people straight. I recommend valerian root. I recommend magnesium supplements. I think there are some prescription drugs for short-term use, but the American Society of, of Sleep Medicine recommends cognitive behavioral therapy for all age groups. It's been shown to work. So let's end with a case from Dr. Mazin from Palestine. Uh, it's about JDM, Dr. Mazin. I'm Dr. Fauzi Mazin, pediatric rheumatologist. I work at PRCS Hospital in Palestine since seven years. Uh, I have a question about my case, uh, juvenile dermatomyositis, a boy six years old, diagnosed at age two years, and had a severe course of GDM, uh, treated by many immunosuppressants, uh, including steroids, uh, as a brain, IVIG, uh, metatrixate uh, for um, uh, two and a half uh, years. Uh, he recently, two months ago, developed acute calcinosis, but I have difficulty to treat acute uh, calcinosis. Um, I need your opinion about the calcinosis acutis as a complication of GDM. It's Thank you, Dr. Mazin. Um, obviously, this is a very tough case, um, but a few things may be worth saying, and I don't know that I'm really going to substantially um, help your case management. First, um, calcinosis is a common uh, accompaniment to JDM, juvenile dermatomyositis. JDM is a different disease than in adults, um, but like adults, um, calcinosis cutis um, in JDM has an association with NXP2 antibodies. Um, I think this could help explain maybe why the patient has generalized or widespread calcinosis cutis. I don't know that it helps you in managing the case, but um, I've seen a number of cases where NXP2 is the biomarker for calcinosis. Um, TIF1 gamma is not necessarily associated with calcinosis. Um, and there are others that are somewhat associated here. Your case was managed with azathioprine, methotrexate, steroids, and IVIG. 
that's the same drugs that we all would use and what other pediatric rheumatologists would use. The other agents that are available to you, and why is this important? There's reasonable evidence in the JDM uh, world that says that those who get calcinosis are usually patients who are poorly controlled, and maybe there's less calcinosis in patients who are better controlled. If it's been difficult to control this patient with those drugs, maybe you need new drugs and more aggressive drugs and other combinations. So I would, my, my algorithm is, of course, steroids, but I got to get off of steroids. Methotrexate, azathioprine, fine. IVIG, as you know, is at least FDA approved in the United States for use in um, inflammatory idiopathic myositis. Um, I use a fair amount of methotrexate with leflunamide. It has a long half-life. It's the same dosing you would use in juvenile uh, idiopathic arthritis or adult rheumatoid arthritis. It's a great combination together, and I think it gives a very good kick, a one-two punch here, if you will. Other drugs that have been advocated in the past um, would be cyclosporin or mycophenolate. Um, I've not had a lot of success there. And by the way, none of these have benefit with regard to calcinosis cutis. So the new one I'd recommend for you would be either a combination of methotrexate with leflunamide. And yes, I do believe that that's better than azathioprine. But realize none of these have ever been really studied. Um, the second is um, maybe a JAK inhibitor. There's a lot of data about the efficacy of JAK inhibition in refractory cases of dermatomyositis. Um, and I would not hesitate to use a JAK inhibitor along with methotrexate or another DMARD, oral DMARD, to get control of the inflammatory myositis. Whether or not that helps the, the calcinosis cutis, I don't know. Um, I've asked a bazillion people over the last 10 years, how do you like to manage calcinosis cutis? I use a calcium channel blocker and a bisphosphonate. Don't ask me why. It's a long story. I have no real good data. It's what I've done. But I don't know that it really works. When I ask large numbers of people, I don't get any smart answers or any right answers. And the best answer I got actually was from um, 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 Dinesh Khanna who said maybe your most important management of calcinosis in dermatomyositis patients um, is the surgeon. Having a strong relationship with a plastic surgeon who will proactively remove uh, calcium deposits as soon as they are coalesced, almost like you wait for a cataract to become mature and then you remove it. Um, that's the most uh, successful way of, of the problems of recurrent uh, ulceration, um, infected ulcers, losing limbs, digits, etc. Again, working very closely with a plastic surgeon would be um, my advice on how to manage this case. I want to ask a favor of all of you. Uh, uh, first off, if you have a, a question or a case, go to Ask Kush uh, Anything on the website or on the email, and you can record your question that we'll review here on the podcast. And lastly, do me a favor and rate this podcast. So if you listen to us on uh, Apple CarPlay or Android Auto or um, wherever you're getting your podcast, please go in and rate the podcast. Give us the rating that you feel we deserve. We're trusting you to um, put us in the podcast Hall of Fame someday. But it would really help us a lot if you would give us a rating on your favorite podcast channel. That's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week. Be safe.